Today, my guest is Professor Andrew Inkman. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Andrew as a person. Professor Inkman is a thought leader and esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Inkman is the director of the Thunderbird case series. He has published in a wide variety of top journals such as AMR, SMJ, JIPS, Org Science Journal of Management Studies, Long Range Planning, European Management Journal, among others. He is actively involved in teaching case methods uh, development and has written more than 50 cases. He sits on the editorial boards of Organization Studies, Asia Pacific Journal of Management, Journal of International Management, Journal of Trust Research, and Management and Organization Review. Recently, he co-authored several books on global oil and gas industry, international joint ventures, and on global strategy. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Andrew, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> I think I wanted to become a professional hockey player. I'm Are from Canada. Good? That's what every, everybody wants to be when you're a kid in Canada. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, how long did you play? <laughs> I played hockey for for till I was in my kind of mid to late twenties. Uh, I didn't play professionally, unfortunately. That never happened. Can you remember the first moment of awareness between domestic versus foreign? <sighs> domestic versus foreign. Well, you know, I, I grew up in a pretty pretty small town and had never traveled anywhere. Really, I, I've been to the United States a couple of times. I'm from Canada. And you know, I, I think I, I kind of got clued into international stuff. When I quit my job in 1980, 1982 and took six months to travel mainly around Asia Pacific and Australia, and I'd never been anywhere. And all of a sudden I kind of realized, you know, I like this uh, international, I like international travel and I think I want to do something international in my career. And how did you choose academia? Well, um, I was uh, my 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 first career was in accounting. I, I was a I was an auditor. I was a chartered accountant in Canada, like a CPA in the United States. And I worked for one of the big, what's now one of the the big four accounting firms. And uh, it wasn't really my a uh, cup of tea, I would say, auditing. It was a good experience. I uh, learned a lot. So I quit quit that and went on a big trip around the world and came back and I did my MBA at the Ivy School in Canada. And coming out of that MBA program, you know, most of my fellow students were going into consulting or banking and things like that. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I answered an ad, found an ad in the, in the Toronto newspaper and for a, a job teaching accounting at the University of Singapore. So I, I moved to Singapore in 1984 and with my wife and I taught accounting for four years as a, you know, as a faculty, regular faculty member, um, you know, wrote a few papers in accounting and, and uh, you know, enjoyed it. It was great, great experience, international experience, academic experience. But I wasn't so keen on the accounting side of it. So I decided 
you know, I like I like academia. It's a great job, a great profession, but I knew I needed to get a PhD and decided that, well, I'm going to do a PhD in international business. And so went back to school after my first academic career in accounting, went back to school and got a PhD at, again at Ivy School in Canada and started a second academic career. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm in, my, in my second academic career. So I got, I, I got a taste of academia before I got my PhD, which is a little unusual, I think, for most people. <clears throat> and uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Uh, well, not on my CV, so no, not work-related. Um, I guess I, 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 you know, I live in Arizona and I live in Canada, so I, I kind of split my time between two two countries. Um, and I do, I do a lot of sports. That's what I do. Uh, when I'm in Arizona, uh, biking, triathlon, running, uh, mountain bike racing. That's what I do in Arizona. And now I'm in Canada, so now I do water sports, windsurfing, kayaking, canoeing, swimming, anything you can do in the water. That's what I do up here in Canada. So. Perfect. Um, now, this is going to be quite different for this question is going to be different. Um, if you stop doing what you're doing today, what is the second best? career alternative path, but actually in your case, it's not going to be second. It's going to be the fourth one. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I could always, I, you know, I can always go back. If, if, if all else goes wrong, I can always go back to accounting because once you learn accounting, you never forget. Uh, the debits and credits are always uh, ingrained in my mind. So I've always got a fallback career. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what another career necessarily would be. Uh, um, not sure, not sure, to be honest. Um, but I can always go back to accounting. Regrets, have you got any regrets in life? Uh, or one thing you wish you would have done or done differently? Ah, oh, done differently. You know, I've done a lot of things that I that I you know truly enjoyed in my career. Maybe one thing I would have done a little differently is I I, I traveled extensively uh, over the last 25 years, and I and I should have done. I probably should have done more. I should have used some of those trips to do some more tourist tourist travel instead of just work instead of just business. I mean, I, I was flying around the world five times a year for 15 years in a row. And I should have got out of the work routine a little bit more in retrospect, given that, especially now that we're in the pandemic and we're not really traveling much, I, I kind of regret I didn't do a little more sightseeing in some of the places I went to. Um, but all in all, I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not complaining. Uh, what are you most proud of? You know, from a, I guess from a, in terms of my career, I think I, what I'm proud of is I think I've done, I think I've had a, a balanced career. I, I think I've done pretty well on the research side. I've, I've done, I think I've done well on the teaching side. I've, I've done a lot of very interesting teaching around the world in executive education. 
I've, I'm, I've, I've done a lot of good case writing. I, I think I've had a balanced career. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what I'm, I'm, I'm probably most proud of. Uh, Andrew, let's talk about research a bit. Uh, how do you explain your research and why it's important to people who don't read your work regularly? But we're talking about layman that uh, you, you would run into uh, in a pub when you're stranded on the side of the road. Uh, how do you explain your research? Well, I think, I think it, you know, I've had a, a number of different, I guess, research programs in my career. Um, you know, the first one that probably lasted the longest was, was you know, looking at joint ventures and cooperative relationships and trying to understand how, you know, how firms work together and what works, what doesn't work. And, and in particular, trying to understand um, knowledge and how it moves and flows between partners. So I guess I would explain it as, is, you know, from the perspective of, of, of helping people understand how partnerships work and, or don't work uh, in, in many cases. And you know, I think everybody understands what a partnership is and, and everybody understands the challenges of, of making partnerships work. Uh, from the layman to the, you know, the, the experienced manager trying to make one work. And, and so that's, I guess, what I would say. I mean, that, that's the... You know, that's what I did in my career for probably, you know, 10, 15 years. About omitted variables in IB research or understudied areas uh, in international business uh, scholarship. What can we say? Well, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I've been working on for the last, from a teaching perspective, for the last 15 or 20 years, we somewhat, somewhat, I guess, strangely, Thunderbird became very connected to the energy sector. And so I ended up doing a tremendous amount of executive education teaching in the energy sector. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that my colleagues and I have, have somewhat belatedly, I, I think we should have discovered this earlier, but you know, the, energy in, the energy industry, sorry about that, the energy industry is, is, is is really one of the biggest, most important industries in the world. And it's not very researched. I mean, if you go through, you go through jibs and look at the history of energy research in jibs, you won't find very many papers. It's it's just not an industry that gets studied very much. And it's, you know, and the you know, the energy transition is one of the stories of our our times, one of the most important stories of our times. And I think there's this tremendous opportunity to do international business research in the energy industry. And it, it hasn't been done. Uh, you know, my colleagues and I are trying to do some, uh, but I think there's tremendous opportunities to do that. Maybe it's not sexy enough for some people. Uh, I don't know. So are, are we talking about energy sector in the US, in Canada, or where in are the world? We? I mean, every, every, every country in the world uses energy. I mean, it's one product or one you know, one industry that is prevalent in every single country in the world. And, and, you know, every single country in the world is going to have to deal with the energy transition. So I think there's you know, a lot of exciting opportunities if, if people really want to study an industry that is not well studied, that is absolutely international in scope and scale in the players. So, and I, you know, and I, and I say that because I'm, 
trying to do some work in this area and have been for the last few years. Thank you. Um, about creativity in scholarship, creativity in IB research, what does your mind think of when it wanders idly in idle curiosity? How, how do you come up with interesting questions? Uh, where is the source of inspiration? Well, I think, again, in, in, in my, own, <clears throat> my own background, I've always tried to be somewhat connected to kind of real problems, um, you know, real, real things going on in the business world, in the business community. And, you know, that's, that's, that's why we're working in the energy sector now. Uh, you know, the questions are, they're, they're, re they're real questions. So I, you know, to me, creativity is, is connecting somehow to what's going on in international business. You know, not, not, not just what's going on in the journals, but you know, what's going on in, in international business. I'm curious, uh, Andrew. Uh, obviously, you're talking to these, uh, to these managers in the sector, in energy sector. What keeps them awake at night? What's the big question that they are um, in, the, in the actual profession they're working on? You know, I think it depends on what part of the energy business you're in. You know, if you're in the if you're in the oil and gas business, what keeps you awake at night is wondering when we're going to stop using oil and gas. You know, if you're in the electricity sector, it's you know how do we how do we add new capacity in wind and solar and and, and stop you know and and decommission our coal plants. Uh, if you're if you're in the car industry, it's how do we build electric vehicles. You know, it depends what sector you're in, but it doesn't matter what sector you're in. There are, there's enough, there are enough problems and challenges to keep everybody awake, which is why it's such an exciting sector, I think, for, for, for researchers if they're, you know, if they're interested. Uh, over the years from your window, how do you, uh, how do you see, or what do you see as the evolution of IB fields uh, what it was, what's going to be, uh, what can you say about it? Gosh, um, I'm not sure I would presume to be able to predict where it's going. I mean, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's still lots of big questions out there. And, and I think there's still plenty of scope to understand things like, you know, just, just the multinational company and, and how, it's, you know, how it's evolved over time. And, I think the, you know, the pandemic has opened up a whole new range of, of interesting questions to study. Um, you know, what, what is the future of the multinational company? I, I, I used to live in Singapore and I was an expatriate in Singapore. And, you know, there was a huge community of expatriates and, 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 it, and, it, and it continued to grow for, the, you know, for, for, for decades. And the pandemic has hollowed out the expatriate world. And, you know, what, what's the future of expats uh, in, a, in a work from home environment? You know, you don't need to spend, companies don't need to send expats to Singapore the way they used to, or Dubai or you know, where, wherever. So, you know, how, how, how multinationals work in the future, you know, following the pandemic is, is going to be a real interesting question to look at. Lots of very interesting. Sorry, go ahead. What, what is your prediction? Uh, are the companies going to send back the expats uh, or are they going to say, well, you know, Zoom is good enough? I, I, I think in many cases, they're not going to send them back. 
Some will go back. I mean, the ones that are, you know, making sales calls and 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 traveling around regions, but a lot of them won't go back. Is my is my is my prediction that the the golden age of the expatriate is over. Uh, it's not coming back. I'm glad I I'm glad I had a small taste of it because uh, I don't think it is coming back. Not the way it was. Not the way it was. I mean, you and I, we can do this. Um, we don't have to be in the same room together. I mean, the same thing can be said for conferences, right? Uh, we don't have to go to conferences. And I still miss going to the uh, conference, meeting the person yep. uh, in person. It's not the same uh, as some people say. And actually, they, they might be right. Uh, it is very difficult to justify a $5,000 trip to a dean from now on. Because this is only fifty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I, I I don't know. I you know I I always like conferences and and like the meeting people that you haven't seen for a while. And I I hope they come back, but uh, I don't know. I mean, the world is going to be different for sure. Okay. <clears throat> About advice to young scholars and PhD students. Uh, what are some of the common mistakes that they that you see that they do. Uh, hmm. Well, you know, I, I I do a lot of I do a lot of reviewing. I've been on all of the major journal editorial boards at, at some some point in time, and still on a few now. And so I see a lot of papers, and I I, I think the mistake I don't know if I'd call it a mistake. I, I just remember back to my own my own time as a as a PhD student, and I remember a paper that we read, I, I believe it was by Dick Daft. I, I'm not 100% sure, but I remember that it was about how to, how to craft a research paper. And, and I think it was Dick Daft. And, and, and one of the things that stuck with me is, he said, it, it should be like a story. You know, it's got a beginning, a middle, and it's got an ending, but it's a story that's got a hook. You know, it's interesting. You're writing something that people want to read. And most of the papers that I review, they're not written like that. They're very, you know, they're full of academic jargon and they're, they're technically competent because people are very well trained in methods, but there's no story. There's no, you know, this is the problem. This is why it's interesting. This is why I studied it. This is what I found. So I always, you know, I, I, that's, a, that's a typical kind of comment I make when I review papers. I say, well, what's the story? Tell me a story. Tell me something that's really interesting about this paper. Don't, don't just give me the academic, uh, you know, the academic theory and, and the methods and tell me what's interesting. What have you done? What have, what have we learned because you've done this research? And, and, and I, you know, I was the same way when I was, a, you know, when I was young. It's, it's hard to write that way because you don't really get trained to write that way. But if you look at the best papers, you know, the papers that get published in AMJ, SMJ, JIBS, they're all pretty interesting papers and they're well-written papers. So that, that's, that's one basic thing is tell a story, tell a good story and make it interesting. And, and that, that, that's, you know, that means working very, very hard on the writing. And, and, but tell a story, tell a good story. And focus on real problems, you know, real problems, not just... Uh, and again, I, can't, I cannot remember the author of this paper, but it was an accounting professor. And 
and he talked about toy problems. You know, so many academics, what they study are toy problems, not real problems. Uh, they're 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 you know they're kind of made up problems with 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 good academic methods, you know, good methodological um, contribution, but but toy problems. Focus on real problems. In international business, we've got lots of real problems. And I'm a strategy guy, so you know, in my field in strategy, we've got lots of real international strategy problems. So, so that that that's what I would say. Um, you know, make it interesting and convince me it's interesting. Because if you convince me it's interesting in the front part of the paper of a research paper, you've got me for the, in the rest of the paper. But if you haven't, then you know it's going to be hard to you know for me to really like your paper. Who was your advisor when you were going, going through the program? My PhD program? Mm -hmm. uh, my advisor was Peter Killing, who, who, who was a very practice-oriented uh, guy who, who didn't really, didn't really, I mean, he, he, his advice was to go out and talk to managers, go out and find real problems, talk to real people, and You know, don't just sit in your office and, 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 and you know, do academic uh, research. What is one thing you wish you had known at the time that would save a lot of time, pain, and agony? <laughs> uh, probably the value of collaboration. Um, early in my career, I... I I tried to, I guess maybe I thought it was the right thing to do was to, you know, to write papers on my own. And, and I, I published a few papers on my own, but I also failed with a number of papers. And, and you know, I think I, it, it's tough when you're starting out because you don't have a network and the network gets built over time, over a career. But I probably worked a little too much on my own and not enough in collaboration because And, and now, nowadays, it's, it's pretty rare to see a, a solo authored paper. It, it, most people don't do it. Uh, you know, the, the, the demands for you know, kind of you know, theoretical excellence and methodological excellence are so high today that you, know, you, you, need, a collab, you need collaborators. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a pretty good theory guy, but I'm not a strong methods guy. So I need, I need methodological you know, methods co collaborators. So early in my career, I think I, I could have used a little advice about the value of collaboration. I think I've got a good network and I built a good network, but maybe I could have built it a little faster, a little earlier. Last question. Uh, what is one question I should have asked you about heaven? Uh, one question you should have asked me. Well, you did ask me about, well, I think you told me you were going to ask me what advice I I got, but I don't think you actually asked me that that question, um, or at least not not directly. So, so let me let me let me answer that question because uh, that was one of the things you said in your email. Uh, what advice did you get? I, I think I got a few good pieces of advice um, during my PhD program, and and what one was I think I already mentioned. You know, real problems, real managers, real companies. Number two is. You know, the theory don't, you know, theory is critical. Um, you need real problems, but you also need real theory. 
And, and the third one was learn how to teach. Learn how to teach because being a good teacher and a good instructor can open a lot of opportunities, create a lot of opportunities for, for the kind of companies you work with, the kind of travel you do. And, and you know, I've been very fortunate to have you know, traveled the world teaching and, and being in international business and traveling the world, you know, that's, that's what I wanted to do. And, and teaching was what allowed me to do that. I mean, I, I did it in research too, but not to, most of my travel was teaching oriented. And, and, and I went to a school, you know, the Ivy School is, is steeped in, in teaching, in good teaching. It's a, it's a case oriented school. You know, to survive there as a faculty member, you gotta be a good teacher. And I kind of learned, I guess, by osmosis is, is there's tremendous value to be gained by learning how to teach, even though that's not what a lot of young scholars are focused on, but it will pay off in a career. But in all fairness, your, your career was different. So you first started as a teacher in Singapore teaching yep. accounting and yep. we don't really see PhD students before they get their PhD, go and have four years of uh, teaching under their belt. That's correct. So what advice, let, let me do a follow-up on the advice for teaching, how to be a good teacher, better teacher, more effective teacher for people who, who don't have the opportunity to teach before uh, they really go on their first real market. I mean, after the comp exams, they do teach one, two sections. Yep. Uh, but at the time they are working on their dissertation. So the priority is dissertation to, to finish yep. it, right? Yep. So what's the advice for being a good teacher, being a, big, a good instructor? Well, again, I guess I would kind of reference my own, my own career is, you know, most of us, most of us in business schools at some point teach with case studies, maybe not a hundred percent. I mean, I'm, in my case, it's almost a hundred percent. In other cases, it may be only five or 10%, but I think most of us probably at some point teach with case studies. My advice is write some cases because if you write and teach your own cases, you become the world expert on that case. You wrote it, it's your case, gives you tremendous credibility with your students when you're teaching your own cases. And you know, one of the things I like about writing cases is there's no editors, there's no reviewers, whatever you write, it's yours. And you can get it published. Uh, and, and, and I realize it's not necessarily academic. Uh, it's not academic work in a lot of institutions. They don't necessarily view case studies as, as, as a valuable form of output. But in terms of making you a better teacher, writing your own cases and teaching your own cases will pay off. I, I, I guarantee it. And, and you know, cases are, you know, if you teach with cases, you know what cases are. And you know, write, you know, write your own. Uh, that's what I would say. Thank you so much, Andrew. This was an interesting conversation. I Thank learned you. a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thanks. Thank you very much. Goodbye.